Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are worthy. <laughs> it's you who saw fit to redeem us. It was you who extended the greatest gift humanity has ever encountered, and that was your son. And you allowed him to enter time and space, not on a royal court, but in swaddling cloths lying in a animal trough in a manger, in a stable that was fit for animals, your son was born. But the horror and also the wonder of it all was not the little town of Bethlehem, it was Golgotha, Calvary. Because you knew full well in those 30-some years that he would be going to a cross and he'd be paying for our sin. And Lord, we thank you. And this morning we're going to observe communion and it just ties so well because what is overshadowing that manger scene is a cross. And we thank you. Oh, the wonder of your son's birth, Jesus. We marvel and we thank you, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Matthew, not Luke, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start a Christmas series that's depicted on these boards, and I want to thank Shar Hulse for painting these, as well as Ashley Harvey, who's worked around the clock to make this look so pretty. I want to know when she's coming to our house to decorate. I, it's just dynamite. Move over McNamara, right? This is awesome. So uh, we're going to be looking at some scenes that lead us up to the birth of Jesus there on Christmas Eve service. And we're going to begin with Matthew 1. So if you would turn there. As you do, Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy. And if you're saying, what is a genealogy? Well, it's a record or a catalog of an individual's descent from ancestors according to the generations. Some have argued that the definition of a mythology is a genealogy without documentation. But uh, nonetheless, here we are. And let's, let's look through the text. I didn't dare give this anyone to read this morning. Uh, we'll go through it ourselves here as we go through these list of names. It says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which seems to be a title now that's being given. It's not Jesus of Nazareth, but he's Jesus the Messiah. It's what Christ means, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. That's an interesting comment. Don't normally see that in a genealogy. We'll go on. It says Judah the father of Perez and Azerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Don't miss this as we go through it. Watch this. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Oops. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of 
Uzziah, or Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shelatil, and Shelatil the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abud, Abud the father of Elkim, and Elkim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zorok, Zorok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathian, Mathan the, the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. <laughs> you read that and someone says, I can't wait to see what this sermon's gonna be like, right? <laughs> <laughs> what a laundry list of names. And, and I know for many genealogy work, ancestry work, your eyes glaze over, you have no interest. For some of us, we just love it. I love doing genealogy work. It just, you know, but it's true. These laundry lists in Scripture are like liver. They're supposed to be good for you, but few enjoy it, right? You guys kind of do the blitzkrieg over it, and you move on to the next thing in the text. But I love genealogy work. You, they've said, you know you're a genealogist if you, and they give a list, I'm just gonna read four of them to you, if you purchased ancestry DNA kits for all your parents for Christmas. <laughs> you know you're a genealogist if you know your email contact list contains more distant cousins than immediate family members. You know you're a genealogist if you evaluate the surnames of all your acquaintances to see how they all might be related. And the, the best one is this. You know you're a genealogist if the highlight of your last trip was to the cemetery. <laughs> oh, dear. I, 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 I do. I do love genealogy work. In fact, when I was in college, a distant relative gave me my great-great-grandfather's naturalization papers. And I had an opportunity to go to Germany, and I plotted it out. The closest train station was a little town called Huma. I went there on the train. I'm asking if anyone knows a Hofeditz. And they said, well, yeah, we do. A little town called Zeeland. I said, that's the town. And so I uh, had the opportunity to do some research and even see the house that my great-great-grandfather lived, which is now a barn, but we won't go there. Yes, genealogy list. And, and strange, you realize this is how the New Testament begins. Think about that for a minute. And one scholar calls it, it's the exponential or expositional function of the genealogy. In other words, it, it is one of the most important documents in the New Testament, this laundry list of names. If there's error here, then there's error in the rest of Scripture. It opens Pandora's box. If there's no error, then you, you ask, what's going on here? Why is this so significant that we should open the entire New Testament with a laundry list of names, many whom we don't even know? Scripture doesn't record them, especially the intertestament period ones. Well, a genealogy list in the Jewish world was extremely important. 
Even back in Ezra 62, it says, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood. So we know that genealogy rolls were kept within the temple. They were guarded, they were preserved. They were used, why? One was obviously biological descent. Can you claim the particular tribe that you belong to? It authenticated, for legal reasons, uh, properties, etc. It, it's also how the Jews at times would organize history is utilizing a genealogy list. And, which we know first and foremost, or most importantly, is the priestly and royal claims. Is there attachment to Levi? Is there attachment to the tribe of Judah? Because those have implications. Levi is the high priest. Judah is the, the king, the Davidic descent. Even today, in an ancient, well, in Middle Eastern culture, uh, oral tradition by many Arabs is kept to 10 to 14 generations. And why? Because at that point, they can go into written form that takes them back to Muhammad. So they can trace their lineage all the way back. It's very significant. And that's true, I would argue today, even among Jewish audiences, the oral tradition of families that take you back even further. There's some common characteristics which we're gonna see do not fit with Matthew's lineage that he lists. And that is, first of all, there's omission of names. You cannot take a genealogy in scripture and, and plot that back and say, well, it's 45 years for a generation, so I'm gonna plot it back. Because a, a genealogy list could skip uh, forefathers. For instance, I could say I'm the son of Wilhelm Friedrich Hofeditz, but that's my great-great-grandfather. And so this can happen. And it's clear Matthew's doing something because he, he says it's 14. He's playing off of that number. Did you catch that at the end? That's significant. We'll come back to that. Secondly, a distinctive with a genealogy list in the ancient Jewish world was that the first name is usually most important. In this case, I'll argue it's not, but Abraham is listed first, and that is important, but not as important as the one who's listed at the end. And finally, genealogies were very significant when it came to important figures of Scripture. Before Noah, we have a genealogy list. Abraham, we have a genealogy list. That's, that's key. And so it's not a coincidence that Matthew would begin his narrative with a genealogy list. Luke will, uh, will stuff it into chapter three of his uh, gospel. But for Matthew, it's here right at the beginning. If you're taking notes, this just highlight a few things that are distinctive here. And what is going on with Matthew's list? First of all, I believe Matthew's genealogy is retelling Israel's history. It's intentional. He, he never, Matthew never sought to provide an exhaustive list of every name that goes down all the way to Abraham from Jesus. That's not the case. In fact, again, you see that by how he structured it around the number 14, which we'll get to. There's non-genealogical data that's given. David the king, we see that, that's unusual. Where verses 11 and 12, it says the deportation of Babylon. You wouldn't expect that in a genealogy list. And what I think you're seeing is Matthew's giving us the spiritual highs of Israel, Abraham, David, Solomon, Josiah. He gives us also the lows, Manasseh, boo, hiss, right? Horrible king. Rehoboam, boo, hiss. 
Tamar. Really? We'll get to her in a minute. But this genealogy retells the history of Israel, and that is why you see women also included. Again, we'll get to that in a minute, but you would not expect women in, in normally in a genealogy in ancient Israel. Instead, this is a, a history lesson taking us all the way back to Abraham. And what is he doing? What is Matthew trying to accomplish? Is that is that the story of Jesus fits firmly within the history of Israel. God has been maneuvering, moving, orchestrating the events to bring us to this point. The gracious and sovereign hand of our Lord is playing through in this genealogy. So first point is that it's retelling the history of Israel. And I think that's key as you look at this. So you have Abraham down to the Davidic king. Then you have the king period that leads to the deportation. The deportation, the intertestament period, that's between the old and the new, which takes us up to the New Testament where Jesus comes on the scene. Second trait of this genealogy, it focuses on both Abraham and David. This didn't surprise us. Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles to show what it means to respond to this Jesus of Nazareth, right? We talked about that. Matthew pens his gospel. He is a Jew writing to Jews to show that Jesus is the true Meshua, the true Messiah. You read chapters one and two, look how many times it says it is fulfilled. You, you, you buy a, a box of Twinkies or ding-dongs in Great Britain. And if it has the royal crescent on it, it means the queen likes those Twinkies or ding-dongs. She also eats them. It's her endorsement. And what Matthew does is he stamps the Old Testament on the events in chapters 1 and 2 and the birth of Jesus with Old Testament references. Why? Validating the claims. The, this is the one. And he starts with this genealogy. And notice what it says. The son of David, the son of Abraham... Seven times Abraham will be mentioned in Matthew's gospel. Why is this so significant to take it back to Abraham? In Luke's genealogy, he takes it back to Adam. Well, Luke's trying to show it, this Jesus is a savior for the whole world. But Matthew, as he's writing to Jews to show, hey, this is your Messiah. It links right back to good old father Abraham. This is key. Because Abraham was seen among the Jews as the beginning of the Jewish history. It's from him that the nation was birthed. Secondly, there's the promise to the father of the nation, is there not? Genesis chapter 12. You want to write down a reference, this is key. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God makes a promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, Go from your country, the land of Ur, modern-day Iraq, and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you, listen to this, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I will argue that's true even today. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, that promise is repeated that through Abram's, Abraham's offspring, all nations will be blessed. And what, is, what does Galatians state? When Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 3.16, he says, the blessing that come through the Abrahamic covenant are being fulfilled in Jesus. 
That promise to Abraham is coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Those promises that were made all the way back in Ur are being fulfilled now. Now that should make your socks roll up and down. <laughs> That's really exciting. This didn't just come together, these 66 books. It's God moving. He's orchestrating the events. And if you turn the tapestry over of Scripture, you're going to see a couple major threads. One is the Abrahamic covenant that goes all the way through, I would argue, to Revelation. Another is the Davidic covenant, which we'll get to in a minute. And it's interesting in this genealogy, not only is he seen as the son of Abraham, in many ways there's been studies done that show Jesus is like Isaac, but the new Isaac. And you go, why, why would that be? Remember, Isaac was to be sacrificed, but God made provision. This son of Abraham will be sacrificed. Even the verbiage in Genesis 17, Abraham is told, she, referring to Sarah, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. Sound familiar? It should, because the angel, when it talks to Joseph in Matthew 1, later on in the text in 120, says, she, of course referring to Mary, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Jesus. It's identical. Not a coincidence. This is the one that has been promised. Why? Because all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through this son. <laughs> it's so exciting. But it doesn't end there. Not only does he highlight Abraham, but notice he highlights David. In fact, David is mentioned 17 times in Matthew's gospel. If you're going to write to a Jewish audience and show that Jesus is the true Messiah, you are going to have to show Davidic connections. It's key. You go, why is that? Well, God also made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Again, if you're writing down key text, Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, you should know these. They're so important. This is the Davidic promise. Listen to this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, and the Lord will make you a house, referring to David, your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. In other words, when you croak, I will raise up your offspring. You shall come from your body and I will establish this kingdom. It shall build a house for my name. I will establish the Davidic throne forever. Jews living in the intertestament period were clinging on to that promise, but there was some real doubt. Is God ever going to keep his promise that he made to King David? Where is the throne? How is Abraham going to, his descendants, bless the earth? I mean, we're servants to Rome. Where is all of this coming to fruition? Look at, look at 120. Look what the angel says to Matthew when he had contemplated this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the, De the Davidic messianic promise. This one who will restore. And so Matthew, as he begins this narrative, he lays out the genealogy, he says this, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Isaiah 11 states, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, who's from that stump of Jesse. David, his descendants, ultimately Jesus. This is that Davidic root that we just sang about. Uh, he is 
It's, it, this is the genealogy. And so Matthew structures this entire thing around Abraham, but more significantly David. Notice he's mentioned at the end of the first phase of 14 names in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, even highlights he's the king. But then he repeats his name again, David, the father of Solomon. It just doesn't end there, though. I want to show you something on the screen. Let's see if I can do this. Uh, we're going to look at a couple slides, maybe. Oh, yes, there it is. Good. All right. So uh, we're going to learn a little Hebrew today. Uh, David, uh, David uh, there are three continents, which is normal in um, Jewish names, Jewish words. Gometria, though, is a, a form of where letters are assigned numeric value. Now watch this. If you add up the Dalit is worth four points, <laughs> the Vav is worth six points, you eke that, that equals 14. This is not a coincidence. In fact, look at the next thing that you see. Where is David's name in the first list? He's number 14. Now go back to the text, look at this. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, first consonant. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, second consonant. From the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14, the third consonant. This was common in the ancient Near Eastern world. It was a practice of aligning important ancestors within a significant position in the lineage. Davies and Allison in their commentary write, David's name is mentioned immediately before the genealogy and twice at its conclusion and is honored by the title king. Coincidence become effectively ruled out. I agree wholeheartedly. This entire genealogy as Matthew sets out to write his narrative is to say, this is the king. This is the one that's been promised to David and his descendants. This is the one we have looked for. This is, this is not a coincidence. And so he, again, he can do this. Matthew has skipped over certain names in order to give us 14 each time. Now, if you're a really astute scholar, you'll notice that the last set of 14 really isn't 14, it's 13. <laughs> and this has created real consternation. Even the early church father Augustine wrestled with this. And I think there's two possible explanations. The first is David's name is repeated twice. And, and I highlighted that there in verse six. And so some count it twice. Another way to do this, though, is that, yes, Abraham leads the first 14. David leads the next. And the next, it's not a name. It's an event, the deportation to Babylon. Why would we highlight that? That's horrible, right? By the, the waters of Babylon, we wept. You know the song. What, what, do, you do, what do you mean you're going to highlight that? Because in an ancient Jewish world, the exile to Babylon was never regarded as a historical accident. Instead, it was always interpreted in theological categories. That is, Israel blew it. They were judged. God pulled out a paddle and spanked them. And they looked for a promise of restoration. Who's the promise of restoration? Jesus. <laughs> This isn't by happenstance. 
as he lays out, Matthew lays out this genealogy to show this is the one that we have looked to. This is the, the promise that's been given to Abraham and David. And it's fulfilled now in this one who is Emmanuel, God with us. Because everyone knows that the exile in the intertestament period, God is silent. Well, he's not silent. He's been orchestrating the events. Just look at the third phase of the genealogy list. He's been moving the, all of the pieces together to bring us to this point where Jesus is born. And so Matthew's genealogy, it, it retells Israel's history. It gives us an emphasis on Abraham and David. But boy, don't overlook the embarrassments in the genealogy list. First of all, there's women present. Sorry, ladies, but in the first century world and genealogy list, you were not usually cited. But look at the list. We have Tamar. We've got to, to marry. You've got in between, you've got Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah. It's an interesting list. I, I mean, if I was going to list women in Jesus' genealogy, I would have had Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca. I mean, those are great women of the faith. And, and you look at the list of women, and most of them are Gentiles. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, right? I mean, Tamar was a Canaanite or uh, some type of Arabian. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Uriah, whose wife was Bathsheba, was a Hittite, right? And, and Matthew, remember, he's writing primarily to Jews, but... He's showing this, this Savior, it's, it's for everybody. And, and so these Gentiles are woven in, and they're not just any Gentiles that are woven in. I mean, let's look a little bit closer. Tamar seduced Judah. That's embarrassing. Rahab, she was a prostitute. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. And the Jewish intertestament writings wrestle with Ruth on whether she enticed Boaz. It doesn't end there. We've got men are just as guilty in this list. Look at verse 6. Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I know enough about genealogy work. You don't highlight the horse thieves. I mean, I would have just put in Bathsheba. Let it go and hopefully they don't remember. Oh, no, no. He highlights it. David, you're the murderer. 1 Kings 15, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except, the text says, in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. <laughs> then you got Rehoboam. He was a real winner, right? His mother was an Ammonite. Let's not forget. And he brings division into the country because he won't listen to the senior council that surrounds him. You got Manasseh who's offering up his own children for sacrifice, literally. And then you talk about that, you've got dysfunction galore. I mean, you've got Jacob and his brothers. We all know about that one. Tamar with her father-in-law. No wonder they say with genealogy list, if you shake your family tree, watch for the nuts to fall. I mean, this thing is loaded. Right? I mean, it's loaded. Who, who puts these names in a list? Especially if you're trying to write to a group of Jews to argue this one is the Messiah. This is embarrassing detail. If you're making up this list, if you're making up your story, you don't include those names. You don't do it. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. And 
One other thing I want to highlight before we do some implication here with this genealogy list. Notice what Matthew says in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, he changes the formula. In fact, he uses a divine passive in the Greek, which tells us someone else is moving here, and that is God. In other words, Matthew is highlighting this is a virgin birth. Mary did not know Joseph when she became pregnant. The scriptures are clear. It's the Holy Spirit. Why is the virgin birth so important? I mean, why is it? Well, number one, we have original sin going from the seed of Adam. That's curtailed. Secondly, it still indicates that Jesus is fully human. He's born of Mary. And third, I would argue, it conveys the fact that Jesus is a miraculous gift to humanity. God had to enter time and space. We as humans had no means to bring redemption and restoration. None. Cranfield, in his commentaries, is not a savior arising out of the continuity of our human history, but God in person intervening in it, coming to the rescue. That's what we got at Christmas. I should put one of those red cross signs above the manger scene. God coming to the rescue. Well, love the list, Hoffaditz, thank you very much. Thank you for the little trivia game that we went through there. That was interesting, but so what? Let me give you three that's there in your notes. First of all, from dysfunctional family members to murders. I mean, you think you've got family problems, look at this list, right? I mean, David could have made a soap opera, his life. Uh, the Lord is in the business of using broken vessels for his glory. <laughs> the Abrahams tell us God is faithful. The Tamars tell us God is gracious. The Rahabs tell us God is merciful. The Davids tell us God is good. The Manassas tell us God is long-suffering. <laughs> Place yourself in the genealogy list. Oh, wait. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in one sense, you are in the genealogy list. We are the children of Abraham. We are the children of God. While it's a great honor to be a part of a, the Hofeditz line that can trace it back to the 1500s, that's wonderful. Far greater to be in this line. Because it doesn't trace it all the way back. It goes for all eternity. <laughs> There's no end to this line. 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You read that genealogy list? Um, who would have thought Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, David, really? Who would have thought of Hophaditz? All God's grace. All God's grace. It is by God. And, and one commentator loves it. He says, it's the strange righteousness of God. Strange and so that we could even be brought in. This genealogy wasn't sugar-coated. God's plan graciously saves people from their sins and allows them to be used for his glory despite their failures. If you're sitting here this morning and say, no, you don't know my story. I don't think God could use me ever again. Oh, then look at the Tamars. 
Look at the Davids. Look at that genealogy list. Don't just skip over it. Study these lives. It's got grace written all over it. That's our Lord. Well, it doesn't end there. Not only does it show that God is in the business of using broken vessels, even in the midst of apostate times, God's providential hand preserved the messianic line. Our Lord keeps his promises. Galatians 4, 14, Christ came in the fullness of time. The circumstances these individuals faced were cluttered, weren't they? With no doubt, with questions, concerns, doubt, and perhaps even anger. God's providential hand was working as I look at this genealogy list when Abraham had no idea how a promise concerning his many descendants would ever be fulfilled when he and Sarah struggled with infertility. God's providential hand was working when the Israelites faced the daunting task of seizing an eight-story walled city called Jericho. God's providential hand was working when Ruth followed her mother-in-law to a foreign land with no prospect of remarrying or a child in the equation. God's providential hand was working when David committed an unspeakable sin and should have been struck down by God. God's providential hand was working when the Israelites mourned the death of their beloved and glorious King Solomon. God's providential hand was working when the country was ripped in two under the incompetent leader Rehoboam. God's providential hand was working when the political leader Manasseh abused his position and promoted wickedness. And God's providential hand was working when all dreams and hopes seemed to be dashed when the Israelites became refugees under the Babylonian Empire's reign. Oswald Chambers states it well, our yesterdays present irreparable things to us. It's true that we have lost opportunities, which will never return. But God can transform this destructive anxiety into a constructive thoughtfulness for the future. Let the past sleep, but let it sleep on the bosom of Christ. Leave the irreparable past in his hands and step out in the irresistible future with him. Isn't that great? Not only does this genealogy ring of grace, but it also rings of hope and promise. <laughs> and finally, far from coincidence, Jesus entered time and space to serve as our Savior and our Lord. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages. <laughs> I know I say that a lot, but I love this text. Hebrews uh, one, we'll just start it there. Hebrews 1. If you get to Philemon, you are almost there. Hebrews 11.1, 1, written again primarily to Jews. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, listen to this. In these last days... 
He has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir over all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory, the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing our sins, that's why he came to fulfill the will of the Father, and that is to make atonement for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and thus he became far better than the angels and inherited names superior to theirs. And the writer of Hebrews is going to stress that Jesus is better 13 times in the epistle, but the point is this one is better because he fulfills all the promises given to Abraham, to David, brought forth and seen in this genealogy list in Matthew 1. This is the one we have longed for. This is the one, and why? I mean, you think about first century Jews, they were looking for a royal king, a messiah, a royal messiah king who would overthrow Rome. They were looking for a king that would eliminate the corruption within the temple. At that time, the high priest was, position was purchased. It wasn't because you were lineage to it. A king who could eliminate poverty and food shortages. A king who could bring healing and bring some answers to the medical industry. Sound familiar? And yet, Jesus' first task was to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to sit on a throne. He came to die on a cross. Oh, yes, he's on a throne now. <laughs> oh, yes. But as Philippians state, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. That is, taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. Corey Timboom states it so well. Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift is that he gave us his only son. The only requirement, watch this, is to believe in him. The reward of faith is that you shall have everlasting life. The Christian story, the Christmas story, is a reminder that there was nothing we, the human race, could possibly do. It, it was God who had to enter time and space. And I love it. He did it in his perfect timing. As he moved from Abraham down to David and David down to the ex exiles in 586 and then through the intertestament period to bring us to this one whose mother was Mary and his name is Jesus. We come to the communion, and you should have received one of these cups and bread. If you didn't, I know we have some ushers who can distribute those at this time. It's fitting as we launch this Christmas series to begin with communion, because this is what it's all about. This one who has claimed to be the Messiah is indeed the one who is the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. And as we said, in his timing, Jesus came and he did it so he could cleanse us of our sins. I meant Jesus had to go to a cross. Why a cross? Because blood had to be shed. A, a man who was completely pure and innocent had to die for us because we should have hung on the tree and paid the price for our sin, for all, not just physically, but 
spiritually. We were dead. And Jesus came and he paid the price for our sins. He rose three days later. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that Christ's righteousness, if, if you come to a point where you accept Jesus as your Savior, recognizing what he's accomplished, confessing your sin, Christ's righteousness is added to your account. So that when the Father looks at you, us, he sees his Son. Who makes this up? Who has known the mind of the Lord? You know, when I read the genealogy, that alone should, should bring us to our knees. That God should care enough to enter time and space. That God should care enough all the way back in Abraham. How many times, if I was God, I would just say, I'm done, that's it. Manasseh, you're done. Davidic line, I forget, I'm gonna forget the promise I made to David. No, 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 he didn't forget it. So this morning, this is for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior because it's a way to remember what Christ has done for us. I think it's a great way to launch this Christmas season, the wonder of his birth, the glory that he should do this for us. So let's spend some time in prayer, having pure hearts before we take of these elements. promises to David and that that a descendant would rise and bring healing and Lord to think that we're on this side of that cross those that long to see the coming of your son we have the great benefit of reading and seeing yes he has come and we can participate in his work by embracing the cross Lord, thank you for our salvation through your glorious Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Paul, when he took the bread, he said, I, I received this from the Lord, which has delivered to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took this bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That infant lying in the manger, the skin so soft, <laughs> 
Remember Luke said Mary's heart was pierced because she knew. Not the full extent, but she knew there was suffering that loomed over her son. And the blood. Surely there was blood giving birth, but there'll be blood 30-some years later on a cross. And the cup is to symbolize that, and Jesus said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for entering time and space. Thank you for caring enough to provide a means for salvation through your son. Indeed, it is a Merry Christmas as we come and adore the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, in Jesus' name.